This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today, we're talking to AJ Richards, who has an innovative vision for agriculture and the food supply chain system. With a background in family ranching and a deep commitment to improving the world, AJ is on a mission to transform our current food supply chain model. It is broken. We talk about this in the podcast. We talk about everything from how we can go from more farm to table, how we can reach a broader audience and much more. So let's dive in. All righty. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. We are here in Cody, Wyoming with AJ Richards. AJ, how's it going, man? Good, brother. How you doing? I am fantastic. So we are in a shipping container outside of Wyoming Legacy Meats, yep. a processing plant that AJ was president of for a brief time, and they're doing some cool stuff up here. So also going to introduce Ryan. Ryan, how's it going? I'm so good. I'm just living the dream. I'm just, I'm just following everybody along. This has been a learning experience for me. I mean, you should see, no one on camera can see this. Maybe I'll get some B-roll of it, but our rig just looks like an EMF mess right now. <laughs> and I'm just like in the middle of it. So shout out to Lambs for protecting my junk right now while I'm subjected to all this stuff. But I'm very excited for the podcast. Cool. So AJ has a pretty cool backstory. And then obviously is very into regenerative agriculture. We're going to get into that. But why don't we start with how did you end up in Cody? You have a CrossFit background with you know a crazy kind of story there that things went south. So yeah. why don't you shed some light on our listeners on exactly how that all went down? Yeah, cool. Uh, so I, I, I grew up in Southern Utah, St. George. Um, and then in ended up joining the Army National Guard there deployed with them to Iraq, spent a year in Iraq, came home, ended up uh, getting recruited to run a national cell center for a pest control company in Phoenix, Arizona. So I ended up in Phoenix. That's where I got exposed to CrossFit and ended up own, opening the first CrossFit gym in Mesa. And it was, it was called CrossFit Mesa, of course, and I had to own, own the city name. But um, during that time, I ended up opening, uh, uh, launching a, a, a head-to-head fitness competition. So I took CrossFit athletes and I put them in weight divisions instead of like this free for all. So, uh, you would have bigger athletes in their weight division and their workouts would be heavier weight, but the whole thing was designed for entertainment. Head to head is easy to follow. And if I program specific for that size of athlete, whether it's a lightweight, middleweight or heavyweight, it just makes it a lot more, uh, uh, friendly to new viewers that might not understand CrossFit because head to head is easy to understand. Right? So, we launched that, ran that for seven years. Uh, we got that to the point where I was broadcasting to a quarter of a million people live, and I would have like an audience of six to nine hundred that paid tickets to be in half in house, depending on our venue. Um, doing really well there. Uh, you know, I was a new entrepreneur, so made a lot of mistakes as an entrepreneur. I ended up bringing on too many partners, so when it was time to seek investors to scale, there was nowhere for them to come in. Uh, CrossFit also sued me towards the last, you know, right at the last year of my running that event, which there's this thing called the pain threshold. I'd met mine. And so it was time to do something else. And, and really we ended up having to file a bankruptcy because of some things, some of the decisions that I made as a new business owner that, uh, brought me back to Southern Utah from Phoenix. Um, my family have, 
are fifth generation ranchers. They settled a ranch as a homestead when homesteading, the original homesteading, where put your flag in the ground, put your fence up, and it's yours, on the Arizona Strip in 1916. Uh, if you look up the Bundy ranchers that you that were all over the news in the last few years, um, that's my family. So we don't sit back idly and watch bullshit happen. We tend to find ways to get involved one way or another. Super proud of what they did um, and the things they were standing for. They were kind of the early whistleblowers on this whole land grab shit that's going on with the BLM. Um, so back then they were, they were painted as whack, whack job, Waco ranchers. And that was just the narrative because, you know, mainstream media and all this other stuff that wants to control everything. Now we know there's a decent majority of Americans that understand that is truly happening. Uh, anyway, so I've always had a passion for agriculture watching that, but I was the city slicker cousin. I always said, if my mom was my dad, I'd be a rancher because that's how it worked. You know, if you're you, the, 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 the female, whatever she married into, if that person was a career person, that's what your life looked like. And my dad was from the city, um, contractor. And so that's how I ended up in not, not being an, a, a rancher, but I always had this drive to do that. Even my event in Phoenix, my goal was to make enough money to be a rancher. I kept that to myself. It was my own personal goal, but ultimately I wanted to get onto a ranch and, and do that. In 2020, uh, so we're in St. George. We moved back there 2018. I was working for a guy named Chris Powell. Chris and Heidi Powell had a show called Extreme Makeover Weight Loss. So I went from my CrossFit gym to coaching uh, for them, clients that were trying to lose a bunch of weight. I'd already been exposed to plant medicine at the time for my own military healing um, I was in self-development, really understanding the psychology behind transformation. So when I worked for Chris and Heidi, I did very little diet and exercise advice. It was always about uh, hidden wounds, trauma that was causing somebody to do the things they were doing that wasn't good for them, right? Weight gain or somebody who's extremely overweight is a byproduct of some traumatic experience in the past. It is no food and the consumption of food that causes the weight gain is no different than somebody that turns to drugs or becomes a sex addict or, I mean, you name it. It's an addiction like any other. There's just happens to be seen on the surface very easily because of that particular addiction. So we focused entirely on the why. Why are you choosing this over this? And helping them understand like an athlete would never drive through McDonald's because they know that they, and psychologically, they're an athlete and athletes don't do that. So my goal is to help them see themselves as whatever positive image of themselves they could create so that when it, when the decision to go through McDonald's was there, their psychological connection to themselves was, why, why would I do that? I, I wouldn't do that because I'm not somebody that eats at that place. I'm an athlete. I'm a, you know, whatever fill in the blank that they created for themselves. So then COVID happened. Those kinds of things were somewhat of a disposable income at the time, or, or, or I should say people didn't know if they wanted to spend the money on that because nobody knew what was going to happen. And so uh, that part of my life ended and I kind of took a step back and I'm like, you know, who am I? What's, what, am, what am I doing here? I'm really good at the self-development side. I also got to the point, frankly, that I was a, uh, uh, a guide for people on psilocybin. And the transformation was so impactful 
I didn't want to spend a year having talk therapy with somebody when I could take them through one experience of psilocybin and their whole world change. It's like a year worth of therapy, right? So I'm, I got burned out. I'm like, I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm, I'm here to help you. And I'm, I'm in this restricted area where I can't talk to you about plant medicine. So I'm wasting time. I'm wasting your time. I'm wasting my energy. And so I stepped away and just kind of did plant medicine guides for a little while for people. But then I'm like, you know what? I've always tried to get into ag. So why don't I just get into ag? Why don't I just go into the agriculture space and find my way around so I reached out to one of my cousins that's got uh, his ranch is on uh, Area 51. So if you look up the, the black mailbox on YouTube, there's like this whole conspiracy about this place. It's pretty cool. That's uh, and I'm like, I would like to sell your beef. Let's, can we set a partnership together and do that? So I started doing it then, right at 2020. And then all of the shutdowns started happening. So all the big processors started closing that means there was a backup in inventory. And so my processing plant that I could count on to call, you know, maybe two weeks, three weeks, a month at the most to schedule, I called and they're like, yeah, we can get you in in 12 to 18 months. When you have a regular customer base expecting a monthly subscription, business was done. So it was over. I, was, I, I hung on as long as I could. I was literally driving to every processing plant in the state of Utah that I could get into. But the margins in beef are so small as it is. When you're driving from St. George to Tooele to, you know, Spanish Fork, just to pick up loads of beef and then head home, margins was gone. It was a complete waste of time and nothing was happening. So we, I stopped, took a step back again, and I'm like, what is going on with this supply chain? I also started getting concerned for my own family and what was happening and what the future might look like for them sourcing food. Uh, Utah is primarily a cow-calf operation. There's there, not a lot of people because of their methods are not able to finish cattle on forage. They have to go to feedlots as calves. And so even though there's all these ranchers in Utah, most of them are not maximizing the potential of the environment through regenerative agriculture and so forth because they don't know about it to even feed the population in Utah. The method is raise a calf, hits a certain weight, take it to auction, then it goes back to Nebraska or somewhere to a feedlot to get fat. That's it's kind of the standard. So I took a step back. I'm like, man, the only way I can do this and be completely stable as a business is if we also own the slaughter. And at the same time, the news was talking about empty store shelves. Like there's no meat in some of these cities. When I'm driving through town and I'm, there's a cow, there's a cow, there's a cow, there's a, like access isn't the issue in terms of the live animal. And then I started looking at our supply chain, really becoming familiar and, re- and recognize that the big four have destroyed it. They have completely disrupted our food supply chain where we're so uh, uh, dependent on them that when they shut down, it hurts everybody. It is not a stable system that we can count on. Then the following year, one of them gets hacked and again becomes shortages because they hacked the, the plant and had to pay $11 million ransom just to open it back up. So I'm like, yeah, we've got to do something. And so this is where the idea to decentralize our food supply chain was born. But I needed to know more. I didn't understand the supply chain enough. My uh, chief technology advisor and business partner in St. George, uh, his name's Isaac Barlow. He, he built a software called Busy Busy. 
Uh, so when I had this idea, I went to, you know, I'm like, who's the biggest tech fish in town that can either tell me it's a great idea or tell me I'm wasting my time. And I went to Isaac and he goes, this is brilliant, but you got to do some research. And he wasn't wrong. I had very little direct experience other than selling my, for my family's ranch and then kind of just paying attention. A year later, I call him like, listen, bro, I'm now running a USDA meat plant in Cody, Wyoming. (laughs) Hey friend, thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. I don't need any more research. This needs to happen now, right? Like I'm like, we got to get going. And he goes, you're where? Doing what? Because like things just unfolded. Like the path opened up in front of me. I believe in divinity. I believe in a creator. I believe in God. I think we all have our own version of that. And for me, that's who unfolded this path for me because everything just, the universe just lined. You can call it universe. You can call it God. I believe all of those things are one. Just where you come from might be how you relate to that, right? The path unfolded. All of a sudden, literally within four months of finding the people I came here with to Cody, I was here in four months. They didn't, a a buddy of mine sent me a link to this plant for sale. I forwarded it to the people I'd kind of started talking about this concept to. And in four months they'd bought it. I was moving here and overseeing a USDA meat plant, connecting with local ranchers, setting up a direct to consumer uh, e-commerce business. Like it just went at a blitz pace. Um, I got comfortable. Things weren't working out as well as I wanted them to. Plus I had this focus of decentralizing with this software I was working on. And so uh, I kind of got comfortable here and put the software to the side. And then I got uncomfortable again, like, okay, dumbass, this is what you're up to get back to work, you know? So, um, I, that's when I called Isaac and I was like, Hey bro, like this is what I'm doing. And he's like, let's do it. Makes sense. So we've been working on this software now for um, probably about a year. Uh, we should be up in about seven months. And um, I just rambled on forever there, but that's my backstory. <laughs> no, no, I loved it. I think it was great. I mean, you gave us a, a, lot, of, a lot of stuff to work with there. I kind of want to go back to some of the, the problems with sort of the conventional system. You mentioned the big four yep. and you mentioned a lot of the logistical uh, for lack of a better word, errors that go on mm-hmm. in, in that area that back up the system. Because I had the same kind of thought that you had. And I was in California at the time during the 2020 shutdown. And I actually remember the day it shut down. I went to the store. One second. <laughs> All right, we're good. Um, and I went to the store and there was no meat. In fact, the only meat that was there was a beef heart. And I was like, wow. well, I'm going to take this because no one else is going to take this. <laughs> um, but... But it was like, it was a whole thing and it really got me thinking. And that's where I really started thinking too about like, wow, I'm realizing how bad our current system for getting things around. I think when people talk about agriculture having negative impacts on whatever the environment, all these things, they don't realize that a lot of these negative impacts come from the current logistical system we have and transporting things from like transporting these cows from, like you mentioned, Utah to Nebraska to get them fat is just like such an inefficient idea yeah. on how to get stuff done. And so that's why we focus on like a lot of hyper-localization with food. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that, I'm sure. But I sort of want to talk about a little bit like your app, you mentioned a little bit earlier, you were explaining it to us earlier, that sort of meets consumers with ranchers on a very local level. Yeah. And also, like you said, sort of meets as an intermediary 
where you can be that sort of logistical person to get people meet if you don't have that local person. So I kind of just, I'll, I'll do the shout out for you right here, sort of explain like how that works yeah. and sort of the benefit of that for the local consumer. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, it's really just taking technology that we have access to now and marrying it with what tradition was. Prior to World War II, you ate what was grown locally and you either grew it yourself and bartered for something you didn't have the capacity or the time to also grow. And it was a localized economy, right? That's, that's how it always was. And so in a very simple explanation, this is Airbnb, but instead of short-term rentals, it's food. So you open up a map and based off of your GPS location, it will instantly populate everybody around you that's on that software that's selling food. Uh, we're going to start with meat because that's what I know. That's the, the network that I have. But we're designing this in a way that can be any food product, dairy, eggs, vegetables, you name it. If it's growing somewhere by a local person, they can list it and then you can find it. The other benefit of that is the environmental impact like you talk about. The current system, we export as much meat as we import. And they're talking about the fucking cows being the problem. Bullshit. Super tankers emit something like 40, equal to 40,000 cows on the street, uh, 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 cars. 40,000 cars on the road is equal to one super tanker in emissions. And we're shipping it out in that form and we're bringing it in in that form. It makes no sense. The only sense it makes is the dollars and cents for the big four. The meat industry, the beef industry is a $64 billion industry and they control 85% of it. And if 85% of it is import-export, that's where the emissions are. And they're throwing masks on cows to find out how much methane that they're breathing and burping. Stupid. But we all know, it's no secret, it's the, it's the commercial food system that's married to the commercial pharmaceutical system that's doing all of this. And so they're trying to throw everybody off of the actual issue and they're making it ag's fault. Well, these same people are investing in fake meat, lab-grown meat, and all the other stuff. Some of the investors, JBS being the largest beef conglomerate in the nation, are also invested in fake meat. So it's a no-lose situation for them, and they've got all this BS politics behind it, which I call it corporate government. Government is corporate. They're paid for by lobbyists. It's now made decisions by the corporations. We don't have a government anymore that, has not, that is independent of corporate lobbyists. It's just, it's just what it looks like. So we need a parallel economy. We need something that allows people to not touch any of the other stuff. And we are creatures of habit. So it also has to be simple. The reality is we're building a software that is, you could Google the ranchers we're presenting, but we have become complacent as human beings. The, the majority of our country has become complacent and they want it easy. They want uh, convenience. So, okay, fine. My goal, there's a, there's, a, there's a mission to accomplish. I'll meet you where you're at. And if that looks like building a software that simplifies the entire process so that you can literally click and buy and check out one time amongst multiple producers and then have it to you, whether it's a designated pickup location, whether it's shipping. Here's the other benefit. If you localize it, you're not running through all of this material to get it to people. Because now, hey, you signed up with me. We're local. I'm going to give you a reusable cooler. 
just like the milkmen used to do on the porch. They showed up, they dropped the milk, they picked up the empty ones, and it was cyclical. They weren't filling the landfills with all of this junk. Now, you know, fortunately, techs come out. This is cornstarch, so we don't ship anything that's not biodegradable, but still. And then the amount of customers that we have in Florida and we're in Cody, what the hell? I sent a box to Florida. The amount of missions that were attached to that box, localized economy is absolutely necessary. Now, oh, go ahead. No, yeah, I was just going to say it's it's so important. And, and I kind of want to just, you know, well, first off, you're going to love my book because you're fired up. It's <laughs> getting me fired up. It's so true. I mean, it's such a, it's just, man, just go back to the money. And that's yeah. what it's all about. And and when the money's broken, and this is why I think obviously you're open to like Bitcoin and these things, is because when the monetary system is broken, it's just these, you have to keep posting these double digit gains as, yeah. you know, these large conglomerates. And that's why they're investing in plant-based companies. That's why they're exporting to China because China's willing to pay you know, 5x the price for tongue or weird things. And then we can import from Uruguay, Australia, New Zealand at a fraction of the cost. Yep. Um, but what does that result in? It results in majority of producers are getting pennies on the dollar because they don't know how to market their products. So that's where, you know, the solutions that you're providing are extremely valuable. And that's on the producer side of things. The consumer side, you said it perfectly. We've traded convenience or quality for convenience. And people are so disconnected. Like it's yeah. not even, like it's crazy. I've seen, you know, you're, we're talking about growing on Instagram, things like that. I've just seen videos of like how I bought a quarter cow or a half beef and they've like gotten hundreds of thousands of views <laughs> yes. and people are like, wow, like you can do that? Like, yeah. You can just buy like 300 pounds of meat? Like, wow. Crazy, it's huh? Like, all you need is a chest freezer and to go, yep. you know, shake some hands. And it's it's actually super empowering. And, you know, I, I think people just don't understand how centralized the system is. And then, yeah, it's all a distraction, the emissions argument. And, you know, we'll get into the benefits of, of regenerative agriculture. But my question is, going back to the processing side of things, how do you compete with the JBSs, the Cargills, the USDA influence that they have on a local level, because yeah. I still see that as kind of the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, you do it's great work here in Wyoming. It sounds like you're expanding and empowering, but I think it's still a major issue because these guys can kind of just use their weight and, and bully small producers. And yep. yeah, how do you solve that? Dude, that's such a great question because Cody has become like uh, where we're at now, Wyoming Legacy Meets, I don't work here anymore. And I'm committed that this is successful because the loss of a plant like this is a big deal for the community and for the nation, right? Every time one of these magically burns down by a plane that lands into it or whatever, or closes because they got squeezed by the big four, that's a huge negative impact on our food sovereignty as a, as a people. So what we're doing here is we have the, the meat processing plant should never be seen as the moneymaker. I describe it like the contractor's pickup truck. The truck gets you to the job to swing the hammer, but it doesn't make the money. Yes, there are some expenses associated with that truck. You got fuel, you got insurance, you got wear and tear, right? But it gets you to the job to earn the money. The meat plant, especially at a small level like this, should not be your focus for revenue. It should be your vehicle to get to some sort of revenue. But that, but it's also like your central, it's like your uh, town square. Literally, our, everything that we need to live to be functioning human beings is food. And this is the central meeting point. 
the ranchers come here, the consumers come here in some form, right? So what we've built here, we have direct relationship with ranchers. They get paid more than they get paid at the, uh, we basically say, how much do you need? Like there's auction price and then there's the price that you need. Auction prices are manipulated by the big four. We work out whatever that looks like. It might be a wholesale purchase up front with some back-end revenue on the back end. Or it might be, here's what auction prices are. Like right now they're skyrocketing, right? Because we're at 1960s level cattle for a population of 2023 numbers. So it's in the rancher's favor right now, but it's like an eight year swing. So we're at that eight years where it's swinging in their favor and it'll come down again unless we disrupt that. So what we've got going on to Cody, direct relationships with ranchers, coming to the processing plant, going out through e-commerce or a restaurant that we have downtown. If you duplicate this model, and the restaurant, by the way, you guys will see it later, also has a meat counter. So people can come in and get fresh burgers right from here, right from local bison, yak, beef, everything. Even the bacon that goes on the hamburgers is local pork, right? So it's all lo- it's a hyper-localized economy. Uh, so if you're not buying at the restaurant, you can still buy your meat there. You can still get all of that done. So we now effectively have created a design that if we duplicated this across the nation, every community would be served by its own community. Now, there is a caveat. There are parts of the country that are food deserts, literally. Phoenix, Arizona, in general, is one of those. Uh, There are producers in Arizona, but they don't have the forage capacity to feed even Phoenix at four and a half million people. So we have the opposite problem in Wyoming. Wyoming has 530,000 people and 10 million cows, right? So producers in Wyoming can't afford to be producers because there's not enough locals to buy. And so they're feeling the pressure where the consumers are feeling the pressure down there. So we are focused on direct export. So when you talk about food miles, the average steak travels 3,000 miles before it gets to your plate. We're talking about cutting that in half or more. We work with ranchers here. We're going to launch a hyper-focused marketing campaign to Phoenix, Wyoming can feed Phoenix. Wyoming can feed Tucson and still provide, there's still enough consumers to help the local producers as well. Like that's the biggest thing. My experience has shown me that people don't understand epigenetics well enough to understand a scarcity over abundance, right? There's this scarcity mindset. When I talk to producers there, if I'm selling and you're selling, you're not going to tell me what works because you're afraid that you're not going to have enough. We need to unify. There are 327 million Americans, 200 and, well, that's probably higher now with the border. (laughs) But there are also, I think the the estimation is 4% are vegan. So in my calculations, it's like four to 6%. So I said, okay, let's go with 6%. There are 297 million meat eaters in the United States. The reality is we couldn't stop using the big four if we wanted to tomorrow. It's a, it's a process. We need the big four. But my opinion is 85% of the revenue should be going to the small farms and ranchers and the corporations should be picking up the final 15% to fill in the gap or whatever producers can't do. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And just a quick comment. It's like something I've thought about a lot is, yeah, how like Wyoming, the Dakotas, these states have more cattle, multiple, yep. um, you know, two to five X the, the quantity of cattle compared to people. And that's where you get within these like state and federal legislation issues. And what I would like to see, which probably will never happen is, can we have like 
interstate regional partnerships. Because where are we? We're in Cody. I mean, all of Wyoming, you could see what, what are population centers that are close by. You're talking about Phoenix. That's actually not, that's a little further, but even yep. like Salt Lake, yep. Denver, Las Vegas. I mean, you could argue that Las Vegas and Phoenix should probably not even exist at this point because <laughs> yeah. they're just wasting so much water right. for golf courses. But <laughs> Or um, the Saudis grass. Yeah, hey? yeah. So anyway, um, how do we maybe build a interstate relationship? Because the USDA just comes down with so many of yep. these, you know, regulations and added hurdles, which is added cost. And you're talking about, you know, people here, if they have to go to like Billings, which is across state lines, yep. that just adds another uh, dimension of complexity. I would love to see from a more decentralized fashion, can Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, can, can like these states work together to where they don't need to be under that umbrella of like yep. the USDA. And then you could go and sell state inspected meat or have more, you know, processors at the state level sell into regional hubs. Hundred percent. So I just want to comment that. Uh, yeah, that that's exactly the goal. I mean, you, you nailed it. Uh, I've had a few conversations with Governor Mark Gordon. The conversation was, "Hey, how can I help ag in the state?" And he said, "Get it out of the state," because that's what they need, right? Like we're talking about. And I do see the possibility where Arizona, all they have, like let's, I'll use Arizona, Utah. Also, there's a lot more producers in Utah, so they're not as in much of a need as yeah, exactly. But I think. If we took Montana, Wyoming, Utah, Arizona, you basically got a strip of producers that can support that entire community all the way down to the, to the border, right? But if Arizona's politicians, it'll always come down to politics, said, hey, we're actually, we're totally on board. We're going to recognize state inspected plants as being sufficient for our consumers in Arizona. Now we've just opened up the number of processors we have access to because that'll you're going to have a pinch point there, right? This plant can only do 35 head a week. We are building a new one that will do 50 head a day. But that, when you talk about feeding a population of four and a half million people, still not enough. But if we can start bringing state inspected plants on, online through unique relationships, interstate relationships, like you said, that's exactly the solution. So yeah, because that, 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 that was actually my question was like, how many plants like this, because you were explaining, like you said, you produce 35 head a, head a week and yep. then you're, that, the new one you're going to be able to hopefully do 50 a day. Yes. So yeah, I guess my question would be like, how many would you need in, in those areas to like meet those needs of, of places like Phoenix or Las Vegas that are sort of like food deserts? Um, and, and what would that process be like to get those in place to make that feasible? Like you mentioned sort of the, having this, the state uh, regulated ones yeah. go through. But That's sort of may, maybe explain sort of the process of, of what the USDA has in place in that bottlenecks that perhaps solution. Mm. Well, what the USDA has in place is like, if you build a plant, they staff it with their own USDA inspector, mm. right? That's the, that's the current model, the current system. Um, what it would take to, or the exact volume necessary to feed like Phoenix, like you're talking about, I don't know. That will take somebody with uh, an economy background and, you know, that can run all of those numbers. Um, but that's why I also said we couldn't turn off the big four tomorrow if we wanted. We still, we've put ourselves in a position where we are dependent on them. That's what we saw in 2020. Here's the crazy thing. Uh, the USDA has made more grants available to open more plants. But other than that, they haven't done anything on the policy side to change what we experienced in 2020. And it's three years later. Like, it's kind of this BS like 
we're helping. We're giving somebody, you know, a few million bucks to open a plant. It's like we're addressing the problem, but we're not really going to offer the solution because, I mean, it's the news cycle, really, because the news cycle will cycle it out. We'll have the problem again, and then it'll come up again, and then it's a a wave. I mean, this happens with, like, in multiple fields of of events that happen. But I I guess it's like one of those, those bottlenecks that eventually will have to be crossed or, or figured out at some point. And that, and that goes back to like, I think the education for people to have, if not some level of policy change, but it's like you have to bring it down to the personal level. Like we talk about that a lot about educating the consumer yep. so that they even know that this is a problem. Yeah. Cause like all these things that we mentioned earlier about like, yeah, people knew that there weren't meat on the shelves in 2020 for some places, mm-hmm. but I don't think anybody could have told you like why that was. Right. Um, they would have just probably, I mean, they, they just don't know. Right. And so it's sort of like getting the knowledge out there, which is like one of the things we're trying to do and, and you're trying to do as well. I think the education part's really important. And also just having people, I mean, I've said this probably 5,000 times, but it's like having people understand like where the food comes from, the yep. process of like, we were talking earlier about how even amongst ranchers, they don't understand per se um, the importance of like the soil or like what happens mm-hmm. after they go to processing or whatever. And so I feel like on a systemic level, there just needs to be a broader education on on everyone's facet. I mean, this is the issue I have with medical system that I'm sure you have as well. It's like hyper hyper like specialized and we have all these problems because everyone's so hyper specialized. Like you can't, your cardiologist isn't talking to your Mm -hmm. neurologist and all this stuff and they don't know each other's things. So they don't interact and have all these bottlenecks. Same thing with like, I'm learning all these other facets of our modern environment. So I sort of love your thoughts on like how we marriage all these things together and sort of like allow that broader knowledge to be easily consumed, Mm -hmm. I guess, because like you said earlier, we are people of convenience more now than ever. So it's like, how can we get that served up conveniently to the consumer? It's a really tough question. I don't know if there's like an actual answer, but it's definitely like a lot of, a lot of testing and and seeing what works. Yeah. I I agree. I think that's what it is. Not being married. Like the the vision I had for the software has evolved. I wasn't married. What I'm married to is the outcome. I'm not married to the way to get to that outcome. Right. So uh, an example is, uh, for a while, my commitment was you cannot sell on our software unless you are the actual farmer or rancher. No exception. And then I started talking to farmers and ranchers that are doing so much on their ranch. Like you guys, uh, did you interview RC? Not yet, okay. but I talked to him a lot. Okay, cool. So there's a guy here, Car- uh, RC Carter, Carter Country Meats. He's doing regenerative agriculture and it's working so well that he's now the, the, the Bureau of Land Management in a very rare move is offering him more land to manage because of his positive impact. Uh, my family had rant land taken from them. Like, that's why I was like, they're doing what? Well, it comes down to management style at some point, right? So, um, but uh, I was talking to RC and RC's like, dude, I do not want to ship another box of meat. My my land and my animals are requiring so much of my attention that the logistics side of getting it to people, I can't do it. Take over. And I'm like, yeah, but under what brand? Like if I'm a white label, because I was so adamant that that wasn't going to happen, that I couldn't see how to make, how to, how to do that uh, ethically. But then I realized he's not the only one. So there does need to be a white label. And this is where blockchain comes in. Understanding like, 
uh, and I don't know what it looks like yet, but if you're buying through my white label, so I have a white label called Stay Classy Meats. It's just a logistics arm for ranchers that don't have the time to handle logistics, right? We're not claiming it's our meat, we're, we're com- but it's transparent. It's like when you buy beef from us, you're buying beef from RC. You're buying it from Carter Country. We handle the logistics for him. But if we're going to allow white labels on that platform, they need to be able to have direct transparency of where that meat's coming from. And not just transparency, but it needs to be labeled the ranch it came from so that we're always connected to the producers. That's the most crucial component because we're losing them at our, we've lost 40,000 of our small, 40, sorry, worse than that, 40% of our small farms and ranches since the year 2000. And if we don't start making these guys our uh, blue check influencers in our lives, <laughs> we're going to not have food growers and it's not going to be good for us. Yeah, I think it's- Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10 for 10% off your first order. I think it's so important. And it's funny because I was about to say like a similar thing because you're talking about like, you know, politics in terms of allowing maybe state inspected meat from other states like Wyoming. And you could, you can already know what they're going to say. It's like, well, what's the quality of, you know, the operation there? We can't verify it. It's not a USDA standards, blah, 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 blah. But we're talking about exporting things from Uruguay, from Australia, New Zealand. And we're talking about the mislabeling, the beef labeling act and all the M cool nonsense that has happened in the past decade, which ties in exactly what you just said, which if people aren't familiar with, you can literally ship something in from New Zealand slaughter it or repackage it, sorry, yeah. in a USDA plan and it could say product of USA yep. and there's all these, you know, ways of getting around it or you just straight up won't ever see a label. And that's the hardest part. And that's why we are so disconnected is because people don't even know where their food's coming from. And it could say, you know, so-and-so meets headquartered in Austin, Texas. All right, yep. well, where's the ranch? Like yeah. it could be from Nebraska, Wisconsin, yep. Uruguay. Like you just don't even know. So I agree with you. I think it's valuable and I totally think it would give back that time for the land managers to really do what they do best. Yep. People like RC and but you still need to be able to market the, you know, some of the most nutrient dense meat. Where exactly is it coming from? That connection will be valuable. And I think that's something people are gravitating towards tremendously now. That's why you guys are getting such a great response on social media. People crave transparency because they just don't even trust any. I don't trust anything mm-hmm. I see in the grocery store anymore. And it's like, if you can put it on there and say, you know, then you have the whole story on your website or scan a QR code on the label yep. and you can show the transparent videos and nutrient dense studies that mm-hmm. have been done on like RC's meat. That's exactly. what it's all about. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it it really just comes down to true transparency, true label transparency to know, and and also what's in the product, right? If you buy something from the store, it's probably likely that, like, let's say you buy a one pound package of ground beef at grocery store X, Y, or Z. You pick it; doesn't matter. That one pound of meat is probably a mixture of 
dozens of different animals. Whereas if you buy direct, that one pound of meat is from animal tag 365. And it's only beef from animal 365. Even if we brought in five cows from RC's ranch, they're going to be packaged by the animal, not by the load, not by the all five. So we're talking about getting down even to that granular so that it's just you have transparency. That's really what it comes down to. The the product of the USA labeling, the grass-fed labeling now. Tom Vilsack just changed the rules on that, which is stupid. He's like, whoa, well, all cows have grass at some point. The consumer isn't paying enough attention to be like, well, yeah, but when you say grass-fed, I'm thinking grass-fed and finished. Now we got to spell it out. Now on our label, we have to put grass-fed and finished because somebody in the big four lobbied and said, well, these cows were on grass for the first six months. They might've been shoved with corn and grain for the last year and a half, but the first six months it was grass. It's total bullshit. And I think it also comes down to something we talk about is the nutrient per dollar and like, you know, willing yes. to pay. So what's the hardest part is selling direct to consumer, getting more people on board. The prices of food as a result of centralized ag and food companies has been held so artificially low as a result of subsidies and just consolidation that people just don't really understand what a pound of RC Carter meat or like high quality bison is worth. Yeah. And they see that sticker price, you know, 10, 12, $15 mm-hmm. a pound. They're like for ground yeah. and then steaks, you know, yeah. 25, 30 plus. They're like, I can't afford that. But it's like, you know, what are your incentives? What's the nutrient per dollar? And, you know, let's see what you're spending money on in a month. Exactly. And realigning those values. The only way you will convince people is through transparency, I think. And and proving it. Like, you have to prove it or else, you know, you're just another grocery store meat. Yeah. We used to spend... 30% 30% of our budget on our food and 8% on healthcare. Don't, don't quote me on those exact numbers. Now it's the opposite or worse. And the thing is, is you guys all being on the health journey as well. At some point in your life, your health will become the most important thing to you. At some point, maybe it's 60, maybe it's, maybe you're fortunate enough to see the, the needs of that. Now we're seeing testosterone and fertility levels amongst 20 year olds tank all directly related to lifestyle, which includes food, right? There, uh, sometimes I kind of laugh. Sometimes I'll, I'll be scrolling through social media and I'll see an ad for hymns. It's like the hair, but they also do boner pills. <laughs> when I was young, when I was young, guess who they had marketing those and who they were targeting? 60 year olds. And that was who was in the ad for the little blue pill. Now you look at them, they're mid twenties to thirties. I'm like, it, I just laugh. I'm like, dude, this is crazy. And it's directly related to the health of our, our health, right? The first time in history that we're expected to die younger than the previous generation, 100% related to our food system and our lifestyle choices. And so when you talk about the value of food, it's a whole new, it doesn't take very long for us to completely forget like, like we're one generation, two generations away, and that's it from a complete shift in the quality of life when it comes to our health. But when you start having to educate, when things are so expensive and all the families are thinking about is, well, it costs so much, your health bills are going to be higher later than your food bill now. A lot of those families are also spending money probably where they shouldn't. 
How many streaming services are you paying for? Right? What, how much, how much alcohol? Like, I don't judge. I drink, I have a, I have a good time. But when it comes to budgeting, are you budgeting in the right areas? Because it's a new concept to invest in food as a nutrient dense to pay for the nutrients versus just to fill my belly, right? Because that's really the choices now. I'm hungry, so I want to be satiated. And so I'm going to buy the cheap stuff just to fill my belly. But because it was cheap, I'm hungry in 10 more minutes, 20 more minutes, right? Versus I'm going to invest in the most nutrient dense food. I'm going to need less of it. So it's going to stretch further, but I'm also not going to spend the same amount of money in healthcare or chronic health issues that I would if I didn't. So many people are spending so much money in healthcare on chronic health issues that are 100% treatable by quality food and exercise. Yeah, no, I mean, we talk about that a lot on the podcast. It's certainly been like a large part of, of my journey. I mean, I talk about my dad on the podcast at least once every other episode, but he's just like the example I like to use because he's like in his, he turned 60 this year and like he's not in the best of health. He's also not in the worst, but like he has a lot of the chronic diseases that are predominantly lifestyle lifestyle driven, but he's of that generation and of that. I think people have this, this, um, this knowledge that everything is just like, oh, it's genetic or whatever, that my HDL sucks. It sucked forever. <laughs> like my, that's my, this is literally my dad saying this to me. Like my HDL has always been bad, always, no matter what I did. My HDL has been like so bad. And my LDL is just like, well, it wasn't until I was 30. And so like our, our whole chat is like, don't worry about it till you're 30. Like he'll tell me that all the time. And I'm like, that's not, that's just not how health should work. Like you shouldn't have to worry about things suddenly when you're 40. Like, yeah, maybe if you knowingly live bad, yep. then maybe I should start worrying about it as it accumulates over time. But it's just, it's just goes back to like lack of education, lack of, I mean, some people just, I, I just think there's this lack of curiosity uh, for, for that. I mean, we, I feel like a lot of our values are just not around the things they necessarily should be. And I'm not here to judge anyone's values per se, but I don't think health's necessarily a priority. For, for people. And and I look at myself as sort of a, a younger person, but I, I got sick at 23. And the only reason I even started to value health was because I had suddenly all these things happen to me that shouldn't be happening to a 23-year-old and no one could tell me why other than it was bad luck. But then it sort, of, it sort of hit me like that. I was like, oh, it was all this stuff I had been doing the last five, six years that led me to where I am now. And came my mission to like tell other people like, Hey, you have this ability to control like all this stuff. And I just, I think we live, we live in a society as the, the <laughs> meme is, but it's that it goes back to all the stuff we've been talking about with regenerative ag. It's like about your ability to control your destiny, control where you buy your food, know where it comes from, all this stuff, control the, the things with your health and all these things marry together. And so, I mean, you had a very good quote in an article I, I read that you did um, this morning, actually. But uh, you were talking about how, uh, I think you were talking about, I think you were talking about fitness and leaving the CrossFit industry and all mm -hmm. that stuff. But because you're basically saying like, what does it matter if we have all these people doing this really cool stuff with the CrossFit and athletics if the food sucks? Yep. It, you can't feed athletes on crap food. Yep. And you can't feed your children on crap food because they're not going to develop well and all these various things. So I think that importance of food yeah. is like super under discussed um, and at least in mainstream. And, and it needs to be looked at as an investment like like your retirement, your 401k and all this stuff, like your food value 
nutrient density value and all that stuff makes so much more sense long-term. Yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all relative to me now. Like everything is the same, the same idea. It's all going towards the same stuff. For sure. Um, so like your audience, I'm, uh, I'm sure is like people that are listening for help advice or ideas on how to optimize themselves, right? So this, this will land really well for them because in this, in this demographic, because I'm part of that, we spend a lot of money on supplements to make up for what we don't have in our food. A lot of money on supplements. And I say money specifically because when you go to look at regenerative meat, and you're like, oh, that's too expensive. You'll get all your phytonutrients, your essential and non-essential amino acids and your omega-3s out of the quality of meat. You can reduce your supplemental intake. Or if you want to keep it going, do it. But no, it's like they say, you can't outwork a bad diet. It's as simple as I can make it. You go to CrossFit day in and day out, as an example, or any other fitness regime, but you eat crap. You're eating McDonald's, you're eating ice cream, you're doing the sugars and stuff. You negated the exercise. Your internal micro gut biome is dying. Like you might have some muscle mass, but internally you're pro- you, you might still have some chronic health issues that you don't even know is related to your food intake, your foundational nutrients, right? Your human beings need three things, food, shelter, safety. Yes, I put water in the food category. Food, number one. Without it, we're dead. But we're going to chase it with, we're going to chase our bad, uh, our poor nutrient quality food with supplements to make up for it. How about invest in these companies, the meat of these companies who can show you actual data you know, RCs meet 74% higher in phytonutrients and essential amino acids than even than regular beef, corn and grain finished. Grass-fed is a little bit higher. Grass-fed and finished is a little bit higher. But on the regenerative side, the focus on multiple, this is what people, uh, this audience probably would like to hear. It's because of the multiple species of grasses, the native grasses that RCs focused on bringing back. So now you're your meat had a salad bar with a variety of meat, uh, of grass, which contributes to them on all different levels. If you take a cow that's only been fattened on alfalfa, your own, that cow's only getting whatever value comes out of alfalfa and that's it. But when they have 18 species of grass because the, the ranch manager focused on developing that, they're getting the nutrient quality of every single different species of grass. And that translates into those nutrients in our meat. So that's the sort of like the saying, just to kind of, to, uh, for lack of a word, better word, dumb it down, I guess. It's like when people say like, eat the rainbow, which I hate that thing now. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that term. Unless it's like a rainbow of meat or something. Yeah. But, um, but it's, it's like the same idea. It's actually, when you think about it on a really logical basis, all makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, Multiple species of grass, different, you know, chemical makeups, different vitamin nutrient ratios and stuff like that. The soils like maybe a little different depending on whether they're grazing on the land. And that goes into like how you want to move the cattle around and you want to move in different parts of the land so that regenerates soil here and there and yep. stuff like that. And we can talk about that in a second. But it's sort of like eating the rainbow for them so that they get that more diverse yes. profile. In turn, you get that too. And so that's why none of these, and we talked about this with Stefan Van Fleet, so I won't get into it too much, but that's why we talked about things like Beyond Meat and all this stuff where they basically just inject, I mean, they're full of crap anyways, yeah. but they inject these things with like folic acid and all these, you know, fortified, we can talk about fortified foods. 
um, it's not the same at all. And it's just not the same. And I won't get into it because we talked about that podcast. Go watch that one. But I would love to talk about sort of um, pasture lands and stuff like that and the importance of you know, moving kettle around so that they can regenerate the soil and why that's important for the end product, mm-hmm. but also for the cattle's health and also the health of the soil so that we can reuse it. Because part of the problem with conventional crop raising and cattle stuff like that is that we just destroy soil over and over and over yeah. again. And we have this crisis of nutrient depleted soil. So I'd love for you to talk about sort of that process yeah. and why that's important. Well, I'm not the expert on this, but I've been researching it for a long time and you've had some good people on there, but I'll explain it like I do when I'm talking to a rancher for the first time that has not heard of regenerative agriculture. Uh, but really, first of all, like you said, I think it's something like you'd have to eat a dozen oranges to get the same vitamin C levels that you used to get with one. My dad told me that when he was a he goes, he doesn't eat bananas anymore because they don't taste like bananas. And he goes, I feel bad for you guys. You don't actually know what a banana tastes like. I can't eat them now because they taste synthetic. So when he was a kid, a banana, he's like, they just don't taste the same. What he's identifying in observational science is uh, what's happening when you're just extracting, 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 and not putting back in. And so regenerative agriculture is mimicking what nature did before we disrupted it. Meaning, uh, you know, on the American continent, life, uh, 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 wildlife roamed in herds, bunched together to protect themselves from predators. And it, because there were predators, they were always on the move. They couldn't just sit in one spot and graze it down because they had to stay on the move. Otherwise, they'd get picked off. What that did was it was basically spreading rumen from the gut of the animal, four-chambered animals, the ruminating animals, evenly across the plains, right? This valley used to have something like, let me make this number up, 30 million bison roaming through here every year before uh, the colonizers came through and wiped them out to control the natives. That's what happened. But those bison were evenly spreading their rumen across the nation, always on the move and never going back to the same spot. There's historical writings that uh, when the trains were first built out in this area, before they slaughtered all the bison, they would have to wait for herds for three days to finish crossing the railway. It's like a black cloud, right? That I was the, they the, said. Yeah, yeah. And then the birds even. Uh, I can't remember who, the, who wrote it, uh, wrote about it in the journal, but like you couldn't see the sun because the birds blacked out the sun. This is on America, American continent. We, we have no idea what it was like back then, but the bison herds were so thick. They even said that uh, when they would ride across the range behind the bison, their horses would die because they picked it clean. But what they did was spread that maneuver so, maneuver so heavily. And when they came back the next year, they took a different route. It wasn't the same route. So there was a rest period for rejuvenation and we had the best soils. I mean, I just saw an image yesterday. I've seen it before. A guy standing in the, in the dust bowl next to a, a, it was like a hill as tall as he, just a little spot that had grass on the top that showed the erosion of the dust bowl. We didn't have that until we got rid of our ruminating animals. So those animals crap on the ground. They weren't given dewormer, right? Nothing that we even knew about because then guess what? Those clouds of birds landed behind them and picked all of the parasites 
out of that and scratched it into the ground. And then the dung beetles came in and drilled it all deeper into the soil so that nature, our creator, go figure, knew what, they, what, what was happening when Mother Nature put all this together, whatever that looked like, right? Because it worked without us. But now we've killed all the predators. We've thrown up fences so livestock can't uh, meander freely. So regenerative agriculture is taking all of those into consideration and saying, how can we mimic nature? So RC has his cows bunched together and he moves them on a regular basis. So they get an even manure spread. They pick off all of the vegetation that they can. The biting of the vegetation actually creates this biotic pump, they call it. I think that's what they call it. Whereas when it when that animal pinches with its teeth the forage, it triggers a shedding of the uh, um, you guys know what I'm referring. It's to? actually from the tongue, I think. The, like the, the saliva. Tongue. From, oh yeah, the okay. tongue like rips it out in a yep. way that's like it in, elicits like a stress response from the grass, from the soil yes. to then you know grow back stronger basically that's it's right. it's like a hormetic response which you know if you just mow it with like a lawnmower or something obviously yep. that's that's not going to happen so the yeah. tongue is that's why the tongue's so strong yeah in, in ruminants even even mowing though what's fascinating like not as good not yeah. as ideal but if you drive between here and even here in your home or here in billings if you look at the side of the road where they mow it for fire protection and then you look right across the fence you're going to see a thicker forage between the road and the fence then you will just pay, watch that on your way out. Right across the fence, sagebrush and patches. Now we've had some really great rain this year, so it's not as evident. But anytime you're driving down the highway, look how much grass is right on the edge of the highway and the fence. It's because of that, even just that continual, because then what happens with that grass? Well, they're not collecting it. So it lays over and then it does some decomposition that allows to contribute. Uh, Alan Savory talks about the holistic management system, right? And he talks about brittle environments versus non-brittle environments. That's the scale that they talk about it on. You won't find large ruminating animals in very uh, thick, moisture-dense environments like the jungles. They don't have ruminating animals. They're not necessary. Nature didn't see need to put them in this environment where the moisture does the breakdown for the trees when they fall over for the vegetation, like it's happening on its own. But you come out here into the deserts, there's no moisture unless it's raining. So in the brittle environments, you need the gut of the animal to break down that forage and cause that moisture to go into the ground and then the urine to be spread for that, uh, that, that uh, bio, uh, biological breakdown to happen. You have to have ruminating animals. The, the Bureau of Land Management, the people that regulate the, the number of animals that can be grazed on a certain area, depending on where you're at, some of it, like where my family is at, they need hundreds of thousands of acres just to raise a couple of hundred head because they have what are called AUMs, which means they're telling you how many animals you're allowed to have per acre. In my family's area, it's one per 100 acres. Now, you tell me if manure is the necessary compo- component to reverse desertification, because it's the only moisture in a desert environment, one per 100 acres, it's impossible. You'll never get ahead of it. That's why people that have private land in these environments that can do regenerative agriculture, because nobody's telling them how many animals they can have per acre. They're like, some of them are two and three X in their herd density per acre and immediately seeing results 
because of that concentration of urine and manure. But they need to move the animals. So like, that's the thing. And this, you're so right on, on all this. And it's like the management practices are are really what determines the carrying capacity. And you can, you know, I write about this too. It's like, you can basically double your herd if you just move them. And yeah, if you, the problem with all that BLM land and the BLM grazing program is that it's been so continuously grazed, which is if you do drive from Salt yep. Lake to here, which Ryan did yesterday, you just see like randomly like a hundred cattle and then nothing. Yep. And it's because they're just throwing them out there. They're maybe checking on them every couple weeks and it's just open land, continuous yep. grazing. And that leads to the cattle just, you know, eating what they want they're not picking up every single blade of grass, but then there's like not a real continuous rest period either. So right. it's, I'm excited with what RC is doing. And there's a couple other people. I think I've heard of the guy in Idaho. I heard a guy in Mexico who's doing like from, from Mitch. Yeah, yeah. From Mitch who told us about this, but really like it, it's up to the land management practice, but it's intense. Obviously you have to move your cattle. Like you have to be almost living out there when you do these, you know, really confined uh, movements tightly packed with large herds or else it's not going to happen. But if you want to regenerate the soil, which then gets back to the nutrient density and yeah, definitely we'll have to link to the Stefan von Fleet episode because he talks, you talk about the bananas and uh, you know, the produce that's less nutrient dense. That's an average yeah. That doesn't have to be like that. There's right. people who probably do have good soil practices or have regenerated their soil. And then you're buying produce or beef from them. You know, it is worth more and you're getting more nutrients. So I guess leading up to what your expertise is, is talking about holistic management, regenerative management to producers. Mm-hmm. What is the feedback? Like you're trying to bring more people on board. How do you go about pitching that? How do we, you know, scale this or just get more people in line with our thinking about yeah. why this is so important? Man, that's such a good question because that's ultimately why I'm here. My my entire so uh, in in when I was in Iraq, I took some food into a village, some care packages, and it was the best day I'd ever had there because I got to interact with children, and it wasn't all about you know war. And although the the photo I have is me playing soccer in my full battle rattle with my, you know, a, my, uh, my, uh, uh, M16 with a, with my 203 grenade launcher. I mean, it's not easy to play soccer with all that on, but I'm still in combat zone, but I'm like with the kids, like my brain got to switch off cause we had guys in guns protecting us. But I remember, I, I didn't notice this at the time at that age, cause it was a different season of my life, but it came rushing in when the concern about my food supply started popping up in 2020. And I remember seeing the look on the dad's face. And in my mind, it was one of sort of like humility that he wasn't able to care for his family. We were in the middle of the desert. Uh, Iraq used to be a wetland. The entire country used to be a wetland. Most people don't know this. I had the opportunity to meet with a guy that, that grew up there. Saddam blocked off natural waterways that made the entire country a wetland because he wasn't able to see advancing forces, specifically Kuwait. So they blocked it off. Everything died. There's an entire culture of people that have been wiped off this earth that used to float around on villages made of reeds 
in Iraq through wetlands. And it, we just think it's a desert, right? So Iraq is the direct consequence of somebody, a human being's decision to, to not manage it properly. So we're feeding this family. And all of a sudden I remember that. And I'm like, I do not want to be in a position to have to look at my kids hungry. So in the beginning, it was doom and gloom because all you're hearing up until 2020, up, up until kiss the ground, the only documentaries really that were out there is we're destroying the planet and we're screwed. There's no option. Right before I saw Kiss the Ground, I came across Alan Savory's TED Talk on what's, what he has done in South Africa. Phenomenal. If, you, if, you get a, if you're interested in this stuff, start there. Look up Alan Savory on TED Talk and then watch Kiss the Ground on Netflix. So then those two things came into my life back to back. And I'm like, holy crap, we have a choice. And I've got all these family members running livestock that are, have no idea about this. None. Usually the pushback I get was, well, you have to have water. It works where there's water. That's why I love Alejandro because Alejandro is doing something phenomenal in the Chihuahua desert where they get six inches of rain on average a year. That's it. And yet he's completely transforming the Chihuahua desert where he's at. So I'm telling my family, like, yes, you need to create water points, but if you invest in that infrastructure, everything else will follow because then you can put your cows in a certain area have water while they're uh, rotationally grazed. When you come back, I promise you, it's going to look way different. One year we had a ton of rain out to the ranch and my own, uh, somebody sent me a photo. The pond overflowed and the entire valley around the pond was knee high in water. My uncle was like, pretty cool, right? And I'm like, not really. And he's like, why? And I said, where did that water come from? It's all runoff. It couldn't penetrate the ground where it landed. It's a total waste. It's going to be gone in one week from evaporation. That is not cool. Great. You got rain, but you didn't get it. You didn't get the rain. You know, when they say, how much rain did you get? Regenerative agriculture, people will say all of it, because what that means is where it landed, it went in and contributed to the soil there. Right? So to answer your question, nobody's doing this to be evil ranchers. That's not what's happening. They just don't know any better. The system has trained them to do this to get the big fours calves so they can finish them and make all the money. So what put me on this journey was having these conversations with family that have done this for five generations and getting the pushback that it's not possible. So what I've learned is if you can show them the path to profitability and the education part of it, they're in. But that's where you have to start. So I kind of went on all of this in the beginning just to show them like, look, if you do it this way, it's a mindset, it's a mindset shift from, or I should say two, protein pounds per acre is how I've heard it phrased. If I can run a herd of cattle through a zone and they each weigh a certain amount of weight, right? That's a certain amount of protein pounds per acre. Now they're in my next cell that I'm grazing. Then I run chickens behind them. That's more protein pounds per acre. This is what Will Harris and Joe Salatin are doing, right? They're adding these enterprises of proteins because they work in symbiosis. The chickens mi mimic the birds that used to fly over. Now you've got chicken protein. Then you bring your goats or sheep behind, whatever you have. They're going to eat a different forage than what the cows did. That's another measure of protein pounds per acre. So it just, it, it's going to take time. 
to re-educate, right? In the, in the pharmaceutical world, I heard, or in the medical world, not pharmaceutical, I heard that it, take, it used to take, probably the internet has sped this up. From the time somebody discovered something that worked better than the other thing, it took 40 years to become practice. Because they, had, they discovered it in the field, they went into third-party reviews and all this other stuff. They had to prove it out. Then, it had to, then, then they had to start teaching it to the generations of doctors coming through. Those doctors had to graduate and then get into the medical field to implement it before it actually got implemented. 40 years. The ag space is very similar because the reason the ag people have such a phenomenal life is because they're di- disconnected from all of this tech. What a wonderful way to live. You're out in nature. They're so happy because they get to do the thing they're doing aside from the financial side. Like that's why it's such a hard thing for somebody to lose a rant. That's why suicide rate amongst producers is as high as veterans. Because when you lose this connection to nature and all of a sudden you're put in a box or whatever that might look, you know, many scenarios, uh, it's not healthy. So these guys are out there. They don't want to be connected to tech. But where's the education coming from? So it just takes time. You got to find them, meet them where they're at, running uh, conferences to invite them in so you can bring in experts to show. Like I was in a conference a couple of years ago with the Utah uh, Department of Ag, their soil health division. They're doing some phenomenal work in the state of Utah. That's where uh, Three Springs that you guys know, that's how we connected. Um, Anthony Richards is the head of the soil health division. They did a conference down there. Those ranchers, many of them got introduced to these concepts for the very first time. May not happen the next year, may take a couple of years, but I promise you it's rattling around in the back of their mind like, there's this other way, maybe I should try it. One thing I learned in the ag space that's a part of this is um, they're like any other demographic of people. Their, their biggest fear of criticism is from their peers. And so like I heard, I watched this video of a rancher in Texas that he'd learned about regenerative agriculture and putting his herd all together because he had them in like bunches and he put them together and he said, everything inside of me was so worried about my neighbors and what my neighbors would think of me doing this. So he goes, I had sleepless nights when all 2000 head were in one herd along the road because all my neighbors could see it. And that's, that's what it was. So some guys might want to try it, but they don't dare because of judgment of their peers. Whereas then you got guys like this who are like, you know what, what we're doing ain't working right now anyway. So it's a Hail Mary. And that's a lot of times that's kind of where people get to is they're like, we got to try anything. No, no. I was just going to say that sounds like pretty much the same place with the health space because like pretty much like, like everyone's scared dead try like I'm just to throw it out there like go carnivore or something mm-hmm. because like oh my gosh what is everyone around <laughs> me gonna think about me just eating meat or whatever <laughs> right. and uh and it's like it's a, so I, it's really interesting having these conversations with with people because you find how similar the psychology of all this stuff is and you learn that we're all just like the same human beings and that it kind of just translates to different facets of our lives so I guess as it's sort of it's a, goes back to us as being sort of the communicators to sort of like get give them the little nudge that they might need to sort of dive into things. What you mentioned earlier was kind of interesting. We talked about it with Mitch Dumkey and I think Stefan too about the multi-species raising because I, I just don't think people realize that like, yeah, you can have like different types of animals on the same land and have more, like you said, protein per acre using the same amount of land because everyone yeah. kind of thinks about it in a very myopic point of view of like, oh, we just have 
we just eat, have cattle here, chickens here, uh, pigs here. And then the other thing too, uh, Stefan brought up was uh, how I guess to really, and I'd like your thoughts on this too, is like to make these things work. I feel like we need to sort of get out of the mentality of like the only three foods in the meat department that we eat is chicken, beef, and pork. Mm -hmm. Like there needs to be like goat and lamb and maybe like goose or whatever. Like they need to broaden their horizons to make, I think this feasible on like the large scale. I'd sort of love your thoughts on, on making that the large scale. That's a good question. I think um, it's more about eating like a local boar. So in other words, you're not raising anything out of context, right? Context is everything. So uh, I'm not sure like what a, a really great example is, but if I tried to raise, let's say a yak in Arizona, that yak is going to die from heat because it's not meant for that climate. We can raise yak in Cody uh, or, or up in this area because of the, the climate's much different. So it's context, right? So I think where you live should dictate what you put on your plate, what's in that context for that environment that you're in. I think that would make, I think that's more sustainable rather than trying to force something to grow in an, in an environment that it's not really intended to. Yeah. And I think you say the same thing about produce, which is what we talk sure. a lot about talking about bananas. Maybe you shouldn't eat bananas in Wyoming. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Or avocados. That's what, yeah, yeah. That's why, probably why they don't taste good. Don't take my walk. They're, they're, <laughs> they're picked so unripe. But no, it's so true. The psychology behind it too. I interviewed Jason Rick, who's a regenerative rancher I'm friends with in Colorado, works with the Beef Initiative. He was like, yeah, all my neighbors just call me like the the hippie rancher cowboy who's just like keeps moving his cows like every day. But guess what? Now, you know, the dividends are paying off. Like he's fully yep. direct con- to consumer and he has a wait list to get on his product. He's selling it for yeah. Bitcoin on the front range. And he's really like transforming people's opinions. Wow. So I think the best way is to lead by example, but you have to start somewhere and then, you know, tell people it's like RC is doing fantastic stuff. So it's like, shit, AJ and I, we just need to go tell people. It's like, look at this guy, what he's doing. Yep. Here's the proof of nutrient density, what he's selling his meat for. It's direct to consumer. And then where's the gaps? Like, how can we, you know, fill that in for you? And then it's like where your software comes into play. Cause to me, it's like, I think people, um, they're a, they're apprehensive that it could work and they don't want to change. They might be older, obviously very common. Um, Average ranchers probably sixty plus. I know the average farmer is, and then B, it's like okay, but if they do go direct to consumer, you know, especially here in Wyoming, like who are they going to sell to? That's the whole dilemma, I think, and and that's really where I'm excited for solutions like yours to to be, be built out because I think people people are a lot of talk and they'll agree to like, Oh yeah, that sounds nice. Oh, I can make more money and protein per acre, but how do I actually implement that? And that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. I've got a friend down in uh, South Africa that he went down there as a, as a, a priest initially. And so it's a heavily Muslim populated community. And so he was the infidel, right? And so that that's, he, he, he's, those are his words. I'm the infidel. I moved in, but now he's doing regenerative agriculture and he started with goats, but here's what's really cool. It's like the perfect example of being the first mover that changes things on a massive scale. So he goes down there 
and he gets gets goats because goats can forage way better than cattle, right? And then they can start that cycle process that, that basically kickstart it. And so he's he's down he's in South Africa, transitions or shifts from his uh, the role that initially brought him there and gets into regenerative agriculture. I'm sure he's probably marrying the two in some way. I don't know, but. The first year I connected with him, like the first year he got down there, that's when we started talking and he was, he, they, you know, they're in South Africa. They don't have resources that we do here. And this is the, that's the other thing too. When you see people in third world countries, make it happen. We have no excuse in America. None. They basically Jimmy rigged this pen together that had these goats kind of on top of each other, which is a key component because now they don't pick just the ice cream, they eat the Brussels sprouts and there's a competitive foraging process. So they, they're not picky, right? If they have too much space with few goats, they can be like, I don't want that. And then it doesn't do as well. Plus they're not concentrating the manure and the urine. He did that really well for the first year, maybe two years. And he had a fence up around his perimeter. I asked him, <laughs> talking about resources, I'm like, so how do you move, how do you get your, cow, your, your goats water? Because that was a question I was running into with my family. Like, we can't, we don't have water. I'm like, so I asked this guy, how do you do it? He sent me a picture of a donkey pulling a homemade cart with a water tank on it. And I'm like, oh, be resourceful, you know? And so anyway, this is where the story gets really cool. Nobody else around him was doing it. The next year, he still had forage when everybody else was dry. And he said they were cutting his fence to bring their goats on and feed on his property. And I'm like, so like, what do you do? And he goes, welcome them with open arms because now my neighbors know the impact of what I'm doing and they can duplicate it. Yeah, it's a strain on my process because I need to forage for my own livestock. But what's the point of regenerating one piece of land if everybody else around you is desert? So he now... He's been invited to teach at the local. So he went from infidel to a leader amongst the community in regenerative agriculture in South Africa. That's, I mean, that's just like embodies proof of work, I think right there, which is so cool. And I thought about this, like, I think I told my sister and brother-in-law this like two years ago when I was like writing my book really into regenerative ag. I was like, it's like, Julia, I just wish like we could come together as a community and it's like everyone's just this massive cattle herd. Why can't we just do a cattle drive from Thermopolis to Cody? Like yeah. bring everyone's cattle together yep. real tightly confined and get hit all that BLM land on yep. the way and, and find a path yep. that would, to me, that would be so cool. And then from a community perspective, and then you kind of branch out and there's obviously you get to the population areas and, that could be a finishing process or that, and then you go right to legacy meets here, or then you could have, you know, areas that you hold them in. But I think ranchers need to be more open to working together actually. And what's really something that we've learned a lot about is, you know, the lease program, Mm -hmm. the leasing of land, how that's available to people. Because, you know, you said, yourself, you always wanted to get into ranching. Like this was this whole goal in your life was to get into ranching. And obviously you're impacting that in another way. But I think people don't realize this. You don't really need to own that much land. I mean, you could just do something similar to RC or ask people there's, you know, we're talking about Kanye West earlier because he had all this, you know, whatever Yeezy shit up here, but (laughs) he had some land 
he's not grazing animals. Like there's people buying up land in areas that are not going to graze them. Like yep. you can take advantage of that and then potentially combine an effort to make it a community based solution. So I, I don't know if you've thought about that, but that's Absolutely. like a pipe dream for me. <laughs> Dude, no, that's brilliant because um, I got a friend down in uh, Tremont in Utah. His name's uh, Braden McMurdy, McMurdy Ranch. Braden keeps taking on more and more leased land because of his regenerative practices. They're, the, the landowners are ending the contracts with current leasees that are doing tillage and all these other things. And they're now going to him and saying, we would like to offer you our lease. There's a guy named Greg Judy back East who yeah, talks about, great. yeah, he's like, don't own the land, lease the land. You're going to make far more money. You buy a land and you've got that land payment versus somebody else already has it and they're not producing, which we need them to allow production. Now that landowner gets to write off uh, their ta- property tax for ag use and then make a little bit of money as a land lease use and then probably work out some deal. Well, I'll give you a beef a month as well. Uh, so Braden and I were talking, we think the future of, of uh, ranching is more lease than it is private land. I mean, it already is through the BLM, but, uh, th- but that's also necessary. And I've just started thinking about this recently that I think we need to see legislation that if you buy a ranch, you're required to lease it for ag if you're not doing it yourself. Because every time some, what COVID did was uh, billing, uh, uh, Bozeman, Montana grew in three years, it's uh, normal 10 year growth in three years. And what's happened is you've got all these people that have a lot of disposable, yep, yep. You got a lot of this disposable income or the ability to buy a third, fourth home that happens to be an 80,000 acre ranch and then you kick all the livestock off. You just remove that from the American production system. So I think someday we're going to see legislation that if you buy produced production land, you've got to have a plan in place to have it stay in production. Because otherwise, all these private landowners that are not la- allowing it to continue to be used, we're, we're, we're at 19, like I said already, we're at 1960s level cattle with 2023 population. And that's not good for us. That's why freaking, why are we bringing stuff from Paraguay? We should be raising our own livestock, you know? So I think kind of to what you're saying as well, it, it's a, it's a mind, it's a change in mindset, which is hard for anybody. doesn't matter if you're an ag, it, it, it doesn't matter. Changing your mind is one of the hardest things that you can do because it's a kind of an identity thing, right? This is I, what I think is what's true because this is what I think. And that's my identity. When we talk about epigenetics, like I was saying with my family, I grew up, family meetings were always about this land is being taken. These water rights are being taken. These grazing rights have been reduced. And so when we talk about epigenetics, you're talking about your, your epigenetics is scarcity. So when we talk about combining herds like it used to be, what you have to overcome is this fear of scarcity. Well, where's, where am I going to make money if it's all in one herd? You know, I, I have uh, family. They have hundreds of thousands of acres, but they're all split up. And they're split up because of scarcity over abundance. Like they don't, under, they don't realize yet that if they combined them, they would have far better success than they will alone. And so one time I kind of, snap back at him. I was like, so you're telling me that 
a tribe of African people that used to war with one another can combine their herd, but four siblings can't. Like these, literally, these tribes used to war with each other. Now they've combined all their livestock. The Yazidis. No, not that's a that's a different area. Uh, the uh, um, oh shoot, I can't remember the tribe. It's down in Africa. They combine all, all multiple tribes came together because of somebody's education, combining them together, and they now all move them all as one herd. And yet, we aren't doing the same things in our country, even among siblings, because of scarcity, fear. this person's going to get more than me or there's not going to be enough. I'm telling you, there are so many consumers that want to buy direct. Scarcity is not there. It's only in the mind. It doesn't exist in the real world. There's an abundance in the real world. That's like, even with my software, I don't want to be the only one. I should not be the only one. Otherwise, we've duplicated the same centralized system that we have. Uh, Farmish is a software that's up and running. Crofters, some friends of mine in Utah that are building one. But I'll call them out by name because at the end of the day, There are 297 million people that eat meat in the United States. Two, three, four services are not, there's plenty of space to to make revenue, to cover your overhead, to pay for your family. Because I still got to put, you know, shoes on my kid's feet at the end of the day. But there's plenty. There's absolutely plenty. And the other part of that, on the decentralizing side, if there's not more, if there was only one, I'm a much easier target to regulate out of business. Because that's what's going to happen. My software is going to do so well that lobbyists for the big four are going to find ways to try to regulate what we're doing out of, out of business. That's the biggest threat that we face is some BS policies being made about decentralized food buying platforms. But if there's a dozen of us doing the same thing, just like if there were a hundred big fours, we wouldn't have the problem. If there were a hundred companies all about the same size, large scale companies about the same size, like almost like car dealerships. We wouldn't have this problem. You'd be, oh, I don't like this one. I'm going to this one. You know, we wouldn't have had a shortage. So. No, I mean, that just got me thinking about like all these things that are, I don't know if it's, I don't know if monopolized is the right word, but there's only like a few corporations that control the whole system. Like you think of just like, uh, just like telecom companies like Verizon, there's like Verizon and like T-Mobile and Maybe AT&T is still doing a thing. Um, but but there used to be like quite a bit more. It's the same like with the big four with with meat and then also like with it just pretty much every industry, like in tech, like everyone has like an Apple or Samsung. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Apple or Samsung, or maybe a farmer has the flip phone, or my yep. grandpa has the flip phone still. Yeah, like they got the yeah. Motorola Razor from 2006 or something uh-huh, like that. Yep. But it, I think one question I had for you, and it's it's more of an it's more of an open question because it's, it's I think it goes back to communication. As well as, like you said, mindset shift, which I think is a really good discussion that we had because I think that goes into so many facets of everything we talk about on on this show is just mindset shift and the importance of being okay. Well, one, the importance of community, but also being okay with working with other people. Mm-hmm. I feel like you mentioned scarcity mindset. That's something that I think about a lot for myself, um, as well as like getting out of that mindset. But also, it's like we have this problem with like we can't. We can't share pie with people. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is my pie. If I bake yeah. this apple pie, I can't give you a slice because I did it. I do that with food, by the way. I'm not really a sharer. Um, yeah, Markel's like not a sharer. <laughs> I'm not a sharer. But but maybe I need to work on that. But I guess my question too is like like Tristan mentioned, most farmers and and ranchers like are of older age. 
how do we get, and, and like there are people like RC Carter who are younger that are getting into this. I yep. think that's good for the space to get that out there and like make it known that and make it cool. But it's like how we, like what, when they're gone, it's like they're gone. Mm-hmm. And like people that like their kids don't necessarily want to take up the ranch all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get, because the, the only way to make any of this system work is to have people interested yep. in carrying on the tradition. And so how do we incentivize people of like our age, which I, we're into it, yep. but like how do we incentivize people to, to get into it and, and make that a reality other than, I think there's this big, I, we like the ideology of it, but it's like doing the works like another thing. Like I love talking about it, but then like the work just is like, yeah. it's not easy. Like none of it's easy. No. Well, uh, choose your heart, yeah. right? You can have a hard life living in a city in a, in a small box and not having the fresh air and being your know, feet in the soil and getting grounded and all those kinds of things. Uh, uh, that's hard. And then waking up when the sun comes up and working all day long until the sun goes down, that's hard. The quality of life on either of those are vastly different though. Hard physical work. See, I, <clears throat> I studied a lot in, in, uh, around PTSD because I had a butt buddy kill himself in 2012. And this was the guy we all wanted to be expert marksman, charismatic, fit, handsome guy, like just such a good dude. And so when I got the call that he killed himself, I'm like, what? Dens made me very vulnerable because the, the, the pinnacle soldier dies, I'm next. So I dove into researching PTSD quite heavily. And what I found out, it was what, what I believe I've discovered and others have talked about now as well. It's hormonal. It's hormone-based. In other words, dopamine, uh, dopamine, cortisol, serotonin, uh, um, oxytocin. When I'm in combat, my all of those are full flow the whole time. Just the spigot's open. The, the, the spigot broke. It's just running, right? I've got dopamine, adrenaline, all those things all the time. I'm with my homies. We get blown up with mortars. We high-five because we lived. There's my cortis- There's my ser- cortisol from the bombs falling, serotonin, dopamine, adrenaline, all of those things from that environment. In 30 hours, I was walking down the street holding my wife's hand in the mall when I was done. I mean, that's a little exaggerated. I was actually in Mississippi where my, my holdover was. But within a 30-hour flight, I was now in Mississippi walking down the mall and everything was normal. I just came from war where at any moment I was going to die. Guess what got shut off? My hormones. That spigot was turned off. So when a guy's going down the highway 200 miles an hour on a bullet bike, he's not wanting to die. He's wanting to feel those hormones. He's looking for that adrenaline, the dopamine, the oxytocin, the cortisol. He doesn't know why. That's what he's looking for. If you look at the suicide rates after World War II, when we started the information age, when labor was no longer the thing we came home to, suicides went up. When my grandpa was in World War II, he was a sniper. We heard instances not until his funeral. My grandpa was with the 42nd Rainbow Division, the first group to discover concentration camps at Dachau. Walking in the gates going, what the hell is going on? Was in a couple of missions that we were told where he would go out with five guys and him and one others twice were the only two that came back. My grandpa lived a full functioning life. Why? Because when he got home, he only had choices of hard manual labor jobs. So in those environments, what CrossFit did for me was release the hormones that I was losing. When I looked at that workout and went, oh shit, and the butterflies started going, that was my dopamine. That was my adrenaline. That was my 
and, and then all of a sudden I'm in a workout with a 60 year old grandma who I have no other relationship with other than we're doing this together. And she's like, come on, AJ, you got it. Holy shit. There's my oxytocin and serotonin. I have connection now, right? So choose your heart. You're going to be miserable, depressed in a city because you're not working a hard manual labor job versus somebody who gets up at four o'clock in the morning and feels like they accomplish. Like we're homesteading now. We moved here. I got seven and a half acres. I've got goats, chickens. I'm building bridges on my land. I'm doing whatever I can. I don't like sitting. My brain, my body, my whole countenance is much healthier when I'm laboring. I can't do it. I can't do a desk job. I will die. When I moved to Phoenix and I was literally, I'll, I, by my own hand or, I mean, by my own hand, whether it's con- overconsumption, I mean, you name it, I would have died by my own hand. When I moved to Phoenix right after the military and I was running a cell center, I was the most miserable I'd ever been. And then I found CrossFit and I found balance again. So to answer your question in terms of like, what's next? The 60-year-olds are dying. The younger generations are picking up the torch that want to. RC is that. His dad is the generational guy. RC had an opening to see things differently. He started doing that. His dad was probably reluctant, but watched it. And now I think his dad's probably one of his biggest supporters because he, you know, usually it's something like this. Fine, you try it. Let me know how it works, right? And then they go forward with some sort of level of faith or trust that it's going to work itself out. We also can't discount there is a massive movement towards homesteading massive. In 2020, Homesteaders of America, I think was the group. They do a conference. 200 tickets sold out right away. Last year was something like 2,000, maybe 5,000. Don't quote me on it, but it was significant. I just met with Joel Salatin a couple of months ago at the um, What Could Shall I Do conference that Force of Nature puts on. Uh, Joe said in his talk that he's now speaking more at homesteading conferences than any other ag or agricultural conferences there ever were. So now when you start talking about the rise of leased land and you've got people willing to do the work on the homesteads, I actually don't see us being short anymore on people willing to do the work. There are homesteaders that are getting their feet wet. They're understanding it. And I promise you, once they get it figured out, they're going all in. I've got a friend in Texas, um, uh, Nate Pontius, I think is his last name. Nate's beard is his Instagram handle. He left LA, was a CrossFitter, CrossFit competitor, was on Meat Mafia recently. Uh, left LA, goes to Texas. I think it's 20 acres, starts with sheep. And I think he was telling me that he now has leases for solar grazing. And so he's already scaling his operation. Has never had any ag background in his entire life, but they're willing to learn. So we don't have we ha- we don't have a shortage. It's just going to shift. What it looks like is going to change. And if if generational producers aren't willing to make the change, very few of them will be around in the next ten years. It'll be done in a different way by a different group of people, which is not wrong. It's not bad. It's just what it'll look like. Yeah, I think that's well. It's a super inspiring story, and I want to talk a little bit about mindset because we dive into that a lot on the show. But yeah, I mean, shit, you're talking to someone who's actively looking for land like all the time. (laughs) I think it's awesome to see. I mean, it's kind of like you get a little selfish. You're like, get out of here, city slickers. Like I was here (laughs) first, but it is it's cool. And although it's driving prices up, you know, the opportunity is there. You don't need 50 acres. You could get five and lease land, and you know, you could 
be in a more remote place or, or what have you, but you can make that work. And I think it's awesome. It's, it's great to see. It's also providing source of income from the social media perspective. If you share, you know, your story and empower other people, because yeah, there's so much work, you know, people are like, Oh, there's not enough land to go around. No, there actually is. It just might not be yours to own. Yep but it could be yours to manage and then some. But going back to the mindset, you know, it's, I think it's really important and we, we highlight this a lot. And I think what you're talking about is valuing yourself and finding that fulfillment. And I really like the way you think about it because we're similar in that regard. It's like the long-term vision is clear. The path to get there is undetermined. And I think people need to have that. You know, we're, we're talking about in general, you know, trading quality for convenience. Everyone cares what people think about them. This is the trap that we've fallen into as a society of this short time preference thinking and week by week, not thinking on a yearly or monthly basis. So as someone who's literally reinvented themselves multiple times over coming from the lows in the past, you know, few years after, you know, you're, you're talking about these hormonal highs, you know, how did you really think about, you know, your life and how did your mindset evolve um, for you to kind of come out and really do something that you're fulfilled with and, and passionate about? Oh, that's a good question. The, the, the moment specifically was my first experience with ayahuasca, uh, uh, meeting the mother, Mother Aya. Um, you know, I was, I, I had my own sort of field of view that I, from how I was raised and I'm very grateful for that, but I also, it was very set in kind of stone. And when I did my first, uh, ayahuasca ceremony, I got really connected with mother nature, go figure because mother, uh, ayahuasca, mother Aya, they call her effective, you know, affectionately, uh, is nature. Like in certain, certain people will see certain visions under this, uh, under this medicine. And most of it is nature, not all, most of it. It's primarily nature from the Amazon jungle. Like I did my experience, uh, in a private setting in New Mexico and my visions were Mayan. I'm in New Mexico and everything I'm seeing is, and I've never been there. Mayan artwork, pink dolphins, which are only in the Amazon jungle, uh, jaguars, anacondas, these are all creatures that only exist there. And I'm having these visions completely uninfluenced by the environment, just the medicine alone. But I feel like that experience being connected to nature opened my sort of my heart and my soul because I didn't worry about climate change. I didn't worry. And, and I think climate change is a bunch of bullshit, but desertification is legitimate, right? Uh, and so but I never noticed, I never paid attention, never hit me that we were in this position until that. And I think I just, my empathetic, my, I'm an empath, uh, by nature, my empathy towards nature completely shifted, um, during that. And so that was the first moment where I was like, okay. And that's where I started really having sleepless nights because of where we were headed up until I saw Alan Savory. And, and then I'm like, well, this is, I'm just going to do this the rest of my life. I don't know what form it looks like. I have to help encourage regenerative agriculture because I don't want to see my kids hungry in a desert. And that's where it tied back to. And I was like, I need to see, uh, or I should say, I, I need to be a part of helping to educate and influence. And I'm not the expert. There's so, this is such a big topic. Honestly, I wish all I could had to personally, my selfish side, I wish I was just working the ranch and learning as much about soil health and all of these different 
things that the, the, the scientists know, not, not, you know, the new scientists around Regeta. I wish I knew that. I wish I had time to study that. But my life pulled me in a direction where if I can help RC only focus on that, then I'm still contributing to that. So where can, where, where is my life experiences best utilized to help guys like RC and Braden McMurdy and even my family once they finally adopt these ideas? Oh, it's in the message. It's in getting people rallied. You know, uh, the consumers, uh, I believe that there are far more people than mainstream give credit to that want to know this. They just do. We're, we're tired of it. We're tired of being sold a bag of lies. We're tired of it just being done to make money off of us and just being extracted from. And so like my own social media has skyrocketed just talking openly, being real, just saying this is what's up. So the, the transformation for me started with that and then it's evolved. And, and r- really what it comes down to is like, I make sure to tell people I am not the expert, but I've shaken the hand of every expert and every level of what I'm talking about. And I'm also willing to not be right. Like somebody listens to this podcast and they want to call me out. Great. I'm not going to hear, I'm not going to double down. I'm going to probably go research what they called me out on. And my view will probably evolve. We get in trouble when our ego says, nope, this is how it is because we think we need to defend it. You know, it's like, it's like uh, somebody we all talked about earlier. Uh, being called out on steroids. But then if they would have just said, yeah, because I'm 45 and my workload requires that I do something, right? People have been like, oh, cool, bro. We get that because we're all there. Like combat veterans are notorious for going, for having low T and needing testosterone currently. Now, I think our food system evolving will remove the need for synthetic testosterone. But dude, if you're depressed and feeling like you're done, you should take synthetic testosterone to help get out of that so you can build back up. Nobody was questioning that. It was the denial of what was going on. So I just try to keep myself in a position where like Blake statement, I'm willing to be wrong. You tell me I'm wrong. I'll go do the research and I'll update the people that I know and that listen to me with the new information I've been given. But right now I have shaken the hand of every single expert in every division that can help identify that. No, I think that's, it's so powerful. What your story is really powerful for people um, to show that, you know, you can reinvent yourself and become very successful and find what you're passionate about. I think it shows that community, knowing your role in the community and building on that is extremely powerful. We talked about that. Um, and then nature. I mean, the same for me. Like when I was super concussed, post-concussive syndrome, what got me out of it was getting into nature, which was a childhood, like really uh, beautiful place, safe place for me where, I, where I, we would hike and camp. But then I lost that. And now it's like, you know, wow, this is real life. Like this is fulfillment, being outside, you know, putting in work, whether that's, you know, ranching or for me, a lot of it's like hiking and hunting and skiing. And that's for me what, you know, is fulfilling. And and I think people need to question what is fulfilling for them or what is their, their long-term vision. And um, that's what life is all about. So AJ, where can people find you? How can they help what you're trying to build out here? Um, so my personal Instagram is a period J underscore Richards uh, on Instagram. Um, would love people to join feed the people by the people.com. 
There's a place people can click on if they're consumers looking to be connected with local producers. And there's another button for producers to get connected with local consumers. Uh, we're kind of using that and then sending people to Discord where the interaction is happening. We have a Discord group there. Um, but those are really the, the, the two places that people can can get involved. If you live in an area where you don't have a local source yet, uh, would love to help connect you through stayclassymeats.com. Again, it's not our beef. It's RCs. It's local bison ranchers. It's, you know, these are people who are busy managing the land. So we're helping on the logistics side. So buying through Stay Classy, they still get the majority of the dollar that they should be. It's a, it's a partnership. It's a relationship. They need help getting it out and we're here to help them get it out. So that's fantastic. We'll have to link that in the show notes, but thanks so much, man. This is really a powerful conversation and I think people are going to be excited to hear it. Cool. So thanks, thanks everyone for tuning in.